This episode is sponsored by Masterworks. Get VIP access now at masterworks.io slash TDI. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. We have crabs, and I like it. Tough April. What happened? All the talk, all the time. Stop the madness. And we have a boatload of listener questions. All this and much more on episode number 764 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Good day and hello, and here we are. It's May 2022 already. Now, if that's not a year that isn't scooting by, I don't know what it is. And hopefully it's not a year that is slipping by and slipping away for you because that's not what we want. We want to make sure we're making the most of every single day and every single hour as best as possible, particularly when it comes to optimizing your portfolio, your investments, your financial situation. And that's why we're here. That's why you're here. That's why we get together. We talk about finance, investments, and a bit of education in between as well, giving you all the things that you need. Now, one of the things we're going to do today is answer some questions. Before we do that, I'm going to answer a question that is on your mind. Like, who is this guy? Well, I'm Andrew Horowitz. I'm president and founder of Horowitz & Company. I'm founder of, uh, of uh, also a company called Trigger Charts, where we do algorithmic trading for specific uh, uh, platforms of investing. And I'm a podcast host. Yeah, one of the OGs of podcasting. Been doing this for a long time. So those of you that don't know who I am, now you do. I did an interview on Frank Curcio's great show, his podcast this week. He does it in audio format, and he's doing it uh, about a year after I started. He started his, and uh, he's been doing it a very long time, and he has what is called Wall Street Unplugged. It's a great show. He asked me what I thought about what was going on, what I saw as the outlook, and that was a tough question. He, in, in the end of the show, let me fast forward. He asked me for a few stocks, and I'll, uh, you'd be surprised at what I told him. But if you've been listening to me each and every week over the last several weeks, you'll know that when the question comes up and my thoughts about what's going on with the markets have been very consistent. The idea of what's going on in the economy has been very consistent. I told him that we potentially are up for a bounce in the markets if something happens. Now, we recorded that on Wednesday. And didn't come out till Thursday morning. And of course, with Thursday, we saw that great bounce. But that's not the bounce I was really talking about. I could take credit for it if I want. Oh, man, I recorded Wednesday and Thursday. It came around. We got this great market. And I, I knew it. That's not exactly what I was talking about. These kind of bounces, these dead cat bounces, these bear market cat bounces that happen in market conditions such as we have now with a VIX that's over 30, that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about something that's much more sustainable. doesn't have to be the massive rally of all times that, oh, my God, we're going to miss out on it. That's not what I'm talking about. Put the FOMO on the side. Leave it at the front door. Let's talk about reality, shall we? What we're talking about is more stability, a bounce that will have sustained value that allows us to put money to work in a way that we can feel confident, not be very uh, concerned every single time money is working. That all of a sudden, another wall will break out. Somebody's going to mention the word nuclear. We're going to see the addition of concern about even worse inflation or whatever may be happening. But really, this one particular item that I've been focusing on and saying about if this happens, we could be in for a realistic bounce off of these horrific levels that we've seen where we're having the NASDAQ down 20% year to date, 10% plus market reduction in the queues for the month of April alone. The Dow down 10%, the S&P down 12 or so percent or more throughout this year. And what I'm talking about is maybe not a full recovery into the incredible highs that we've seen. And that's not really necessary, but recovery in a way that is a long-term sustainable level. What is that one thing? You know about it. I, I mean, I've talked about it so many times. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Now I'm letting it go and marinate just for a second here and letting you think about what is it he's, what is that, what is Horowitz talking about this time? It's the Fed. A lot of what's going on right now is predicated on the fact that we are going to see incredible increases in interest rates. And I talked about this at length. I'm not going to repeat it right now. I talked about this at length on Frank's show, the idea that we are having a significant amount of uh, consternation and concern because the Fed is talking about multiple stories, about tightening in a way that is incredible. Some thinking we're going to go up to a 5% interest rate by the end of the year because we need to crush the markets in order to, oh my God, get rid of this inflation. But the problem I talked about on Frank's show, and you can listen to that show, we'll put a, there's links on Twitter. Follow me at Andrew Horowitz, one word on Twitter. You'll find the links there. What I had talked about was the fact that while the Fed is there to actually do that, they've done a bunch of the work already. They've done a bunch of the work already, and we're starting to see a chill happen. We're starting to see that consumer confidence is down. Tightening of financial conditions. This week, what did we see this week? On Thursday morning, the GDP was released. It was a negative, negative 1.4%. And that negative 1.4% was analyzed, it was dissected, it was torn apart, put back together by a lot of analysts saying, oh my gosh, it's not that bad. In other words, they looked at the inventory levels and they said, you know, because we had a drawdown of inventory so significantly because we have supply concerns and constraints and problems along the entire supply chain and therefore inventories were brought down, could not be replenished, that is a negative to GDP. Now, they don't tell you that at the same time, it was a net positive to GDP the last few quarters. So right now, what we're looking at is a situation where GDP 
is down 1.4%. Let's strip out all the nonsense that was talked about by the analysts trying to make it look good. The fact is that for whatever reason, we are starting to see already a slowdown. The Fed just started their process of removing liquidity, tightening up through the communication strategy in November. And here we are already. And this is what I was talking about. I do not think by any stretch from the research we've done on what is the impact of what is happening of a stronger dollar, of higher rates, of a slowdown in the economy, looking into the, 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 the nozzle of a war, that the Fed can be as aggressive as they're talking about or as some are projecting. Now, next week we do have a, a rate decision. It is possible they'll pop 50 basis points. But I got to tell you, with China loosening and loosening up and talking about stimulating, and opening up the uh, triple R, the reserve uh, requirement ratios for banks and allowing for more loans to go out in the property sector they're, they're trying to, um, to stimulate. And we saw that the potential for loosening up on some of the regulations and, 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 and laws they put on and um, on the technology sector, there's a lot to be said about the opportunity to see less of a tightening regime in the U.S., especially because we are really out of whack with the rest of the world. I just don't see it. And as such, if you think about that for a second, if everybody so far out there is on the side of, oh, my God, we're going to see higher rates. It's going to keep going. It's not going to stop. Just like they had the, the thought that the Fed was not going to stop reducing things and continuing on with their stimulus forever. What happens when it turns? It's dramatic. That could be very beneficial for things like those companies that have valuations that are very high due to the fact that their earnings are postponed due to maybe that they have something in the future that will be coming out. That's like biotech and technology that is in a variety of areas. And it could be very beneficial. And with all the shorts that have entered into the market and all the concern on the sell side and the money sitting on the sidelines, there's something there that could happen. Is it going to? Not sure. Because I, I, the wild card here really is how the Fed is going to react to what I see is a slowdown in the economy. It's palpable. People are, are running around, freaking out, all the talk, all the time. Recession, oh my gosh, like their hair's on fire running around. Oh, we're going to have a recession. They don't even know exactly what that means. They just heard the word, it's bad, it's recession, oh my God. Technically, I don't think there's any reason to believe we can't get into a recession in the next few quarters. We've already had one quarter, technically, of a negative GDP. Of course, not revised yet, but let's say that it stays at a negative 1.4% or even a negative 0.4%. It's negative. And then when we attach into that the next round and next quarter, if we do come into a negative because comps in the past have been hard, then we have a technical recession. Now, let me make something very clear. There are multitudes of types of recessions, depths, reasons, and impact. Depth, reason, and impact on recessions. The main thing is, how did we get here? Is it a crisis that was, let's say, uh, immediate, very quick, weather-related, 
war, political, geopolitical? What is it that has shot us down, pandemic? What has shot us down so quickly, if it is a quick uh, move into a recession, into recession? How deep is that going to be? And what is the ability to come out of that very quickly? In other words, was it a, a surprise? The second type is a major financial cataclysmic situation like we saw in 2008, spreading 2009, and then rolling into what we know had become the financial crisis. Well, in that case, it's a little bit different. In that case, what happens is that you have a much longer and deeper and more problematic situation that affects the banks in a very tough way because the banks were the epicenter of where this all really emanated from. And with that, we had to recapitalize and do a lot of work to settle that situation. So here we are in a, in a more natural process where the Fed is engineering, the Fed is engineering a recession. That's an important issue to think about because if, if it wasn't that, it could be a little bit of the war that we're considering as a catalyst for this. But there's really, if you think about what's happening, it's a U.S.-based Fed recession on the heels of excess activity because of a U.S. Fed-created bubble, along with the rest of the world, that came about due to very, well, let me just say it like I say as a New Yorker, piss-poor planning by the Fed because they were afraid to do what they had to do and they missed the boat, missed the opportunity and put us into a much more difficult position. This one thing happens. I think that there could be a bounce in the markets. Listen to my discussion with Frank. I think uh, it's on YouTube. Check it out. I think you'll find some very interesting things. And thank you, Frank, by the way, for saying I was the best looking Guy in the financial industry, that's what he says. It's right on the front of the, listen, you'll see. Listen to what he says, that compliment. Crazy dude. <laughs> I always say it's why we do audio. You don't see my ugly mug all the time. Well, we have a lot of questions to answer. And uh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about crabs. It's going to be actually inside embedded in this crabs. Yeah, we have them. We do have them. I think it's something... That you should have too. You're like, ew, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> Let me take a break for a second here. And I want to talk about, for a moment, something important. I want to talk about Masterworks because when uh, we look at 2021, we know that it was a record-breaking year for new businesses. There's no question about that. Listen, Americans back in 2021 applied for 5.4 million business ID numbers just in one year in 2021. And with new companies cropping up every day, it can be hard to know when one is truly revolutionary, but we know one that stands out. It's called Masterworks, and they unlocked one of history's most exclusive investments. It's called Blue Chip Art. You know about it. But you probably didn't know that, according to Citibank, Citigroup, Blue Chip Art is now, um, has one of the low, lowest correlations you can find to the unpredictable stock markets that are out there. You know, we don't know necessarily what's a good correlation coefficient for certain areas as most things are being sold off at the same time. But according to this study, Blue Chip Start has a, uh, stock, um, uh, Art has a very low correlation, which is fantastic. If you got $103 million laying around to buy a Picasso, awesome. 
So lucky for us, there is Masterworks. Their platform securitizes multi-million dollar paintings. In other words, they let you invest in the same art as the ultra-wealthy have been doing for generations. In fact, they've securitized over $400 million worth of art. And I want you to see this revolutionary platform for yourselves. It really is a game changer. So, as you know, we're giving you the opportunity to get VIP access to the latest offerings. Just head to masterworks.io, promo code TDI. That's masterworks.io, promo code TDI. I want you to see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. So as you know, one of the things we did was we offered a, uh, as it is Financial Literacy Month in April, it just passed, and we said, hey, you know what? Send us your questions. Let's get down to it. Send me your address. Don't do this anymore because we're not doing this anymore. And I'll send you a book, a copy of The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success. So I did that. And a lot of the names on this list were randomly picked, and you'll be getting your book. There's a lot more behind these. I mean, I got a ton of questions. Some of them were answered directly through email, but we did take a random picking of people that sent in, I think we sent out about 25 books or so, maybe 30, something like that, um, Two people, so hopefully you enjoy those. They'll be coming in the mail in the next week or so if you haven't gotten yours yet, but they are a coming, so thank you so much for your questions. Let's go through some of those, and I want to hit those very quickly and give you some insights because I think the questions that were asked probably on a lot of people's minds, and there's a lot of really good meat here, so I, I thought we'd spend some really good amount of time talking about that. First question comes in from Aaron G., and his question is, hey, with the looming recession, can you talk about when and how to jump into real estate investing? Yeah, now there's an interesting question with the looming, let, let's repeat this back. With the looming recession, can we talk about when and how to jump in real estate investing? You know, with real estate that has been moving up so dramatically due to the zero interest rate environment that we've seen for some time, the fact that there's a a big um, desire for people to own homes because the real estate market has been on fire and even be involved in rentals, et cetera, uh, you have to wonder how long it's going to take to really cool this market to a, to a place that really is appropriate. Because as we've seen, people dumping in uh, cash-only offers over the top, bids for houses, you know, throwing in vacations, cars uh, firstborn into the deal when they're trying to buy a house. And some of the craziness gone on in certain areas like Florida, in certain areas, Texas, Southern California, uh, the warm states, the beautiful states, you know, I think that, you have to really be concerned with real estate right now from a regional standpoint as well as a pricing standpoint. Here's what I mean by that. I think that in a world that we have remote work that can be done from anywhere and it's sometimes any, any, at any time, what has happened is that the desirability to live in a certain place has really bumped up dramatically. When I first came down to Florida in 1987, it was not the Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or even the Miami, Florida that you know from today. Those were the days of Don Johnson and crazy speedboats hauling cocaine through the, 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 the ocean and over to the Bahamas, right? There was kind of a different time back then. Um, and no, I did not have a speedboat, if you're asking, okay? <laughs> back then. But it was a different time. It was much more of a chill area. It was Florida right? 
It was my grandfather's Florida. I came down here because the weather was great and I saw an opportunity. That's what happened. There was no major city in Fort Lauderdale. There was Fort Lauderdale, but it was more beachy. It was more east and west. It was more flowing. There wasn't a lot of streets going both ways and you had uh, quadrants of Fort Lauderdale. My point, though, is that now Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and even Tampa and, and, and the entire east coast of Florida is extraordinarily desirable to live in from a lot of different aspects, one of them being even before the pandemic, even before remote working, was the fact that it was a good city to work for, a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity. But let's just say for a second that it wasn't that. It could still be extremely desirous to live here due to the weather, maybe the lack of, of, of uh, taxes, maybe your political affiliation and what they're doing down here. If you're a remote worker, not caring about where your actual company is that you're working for. And that means you can pick a place anywhere in the world, frankly. But if you're going to constrain yourself to living in the U.S., that has all the things that you want. In other words, there are places that are more desirable by certain people to live than others. And right now we know the Sun Belt has always been, but more so now than ever, because you have the freedom to actually work somewhere without actually being there. And when that is the case, and what we're seeing now is you have a circumstance that you're going to have a disparity by region of where to invest. And that becomes a very interesting proposition when you're thinking about real estate. And then you have to ask yourself, what kind of real estate do you want to invest in? And that goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, which was what kind of recession are we in? If we're in a recession that is an all-out a financial crisis, well, you're probably not going to want to be in commercial space because there's going to be a lot of places that are going to be saying, you know what, we don't want property. On top of the fact that we're also in a situation, as we just talked about, there's a lot more remote work that goes on. So why would people want to be in office buildings? Now, those office buildings could be converted, in theory, into residential, which is something. But we're also getting to a point that maybe we're long in the tooth with all the residential buildings that are being uh, put up in certain areas around the country. So again, you got to be picky. Do you want to have raw land? Do you want to have farmland? You can have something like a storage unit on it, something that's going to produce income. Do you want to be in 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 a in a uh, in a leverage side retail? So real estate, and you talk about you know getting into real estate in a recession, it's a tough call. I would think that maybe one of the more stable places could be, unless things get really wonky and we have a real deep financial crisis, that the residential could be better than some others. You would think that many stores that are going virtual are going to not need as many footprints necessarily as we have more metaverse and more people that are buying online. You know, you have showrooms more so than you have necessarily massive stores. The days of those department stores are somewhat over. We know what's happened with Dillard's and and we, and, and Penny's and and uh, Saks and Neiman and need, as we, my wife calls it, Needless Markup and uh, Macy's. We know what's going on with those and how those places are doing. Not really a desirable place to be. So, summing this all up, it all depends on how deep the recession is. It all depends on what kind of investment really should be placed. It also looks at regional aspects of where you're investing. I think that's all major components of the research that you need to do in terms of, of real estate. The REITs that we like are non-leveraged, diversified, some office, but yet 
um, also residential. It's, it's, it's a broad base of real estate that is, again, unleveraged. So it's something to think about. Um, next question comes in from Marshall, Marshall C. He says, uh, please email me the white paper on the allocation, which I did. Uh, I think we sent that out. I put that in the list of things for someone to do, so I guess it was done. Uh, he says, based on the info from the Social Security Administration, Social Security benefits could potentially be reduced beginning in 2034, with retirees only receiving 78% of the full benefit they expected. With that potential impact, do you recommend for potential retirees or only plan on uh, to only plan on receiving 78% of their benefit beginning in 2034, or do you re- recommend a different approach? Let's break that down for a second. First, that white paper on diversification that I talk about and how we get our model portfolios developed for our clients. If you email me or you go to the TDI website, thedisciplineinvestor.com, go and ask Andrew, ask for the white paper, I'll send that to you in an email. I think it's important to understand how we develop portfolios and why when we look at modern portfolio theory, mean variance reversion, we look at, uh, mean, I mean, mean variance and reversion to the mean. We look at um, all the different aspects of non-correlated assets and how that looks and the whole real in-depth discussion of the flower garden that we always talk about. That's something that you should really consider. All right, let, let's talk about this. First, I can give you the really easy answer here. And the easy answer is we really never look at Social Security as a component of a retirement plan because we don't know and never did know if that was going to be solvent and there in the future. may sound a little crazy to some people, but I didn't want to bank on the fact that what I saw was mismanagement of the Social Security Administration and money being pulled out left and right by politicians that were just not understanding what it was meant for and how it was built on basically a Ponzi scheme. It is a Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. Social Security, rest assured, let me just say this very clearly so everybody knows this and everybody understands what I'm saying. Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. It takes money in from people that are paying it now and puts it out and pays people that it owes money to. Isn't that the very definition of a Ponzi scheme? (laughs) Right? I mean, (laughs) there's no question about this. It's legal, but it's a Ponzi scheme. The question is with bad mis- uh, or, or mismanagement and, and, and real bad uh, ways of constantly going after this till and with the idea that they still are, it's still backed by the full faith and credit of the United States of America, even though it may be totally bankrupt because people are living longer. And again, mismanagement, mismanagement, mismanagement. Okay, that's what that goes into this. Just keep on saying that every time you hear the word SSA or Social Security. I don't plan on it. This is all speculation also, Marshall. We don't know necessarily if in 2034 it's going to be reduced, right? We don't know if it's going to be 78%, 100%, 50%, or nothing. If you want to be more conservative, you should always look at the most conservative situation, which is, of course, it's not going to be there. But if you are, in fact, relying on Social Security, what I would do, Marshall, is to then utilize a 78% uh, number because we don't know. If that is something that you need and you're thinking about, Yeah, then the next question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? You save more, spend less, you may have to, starting when? So I think that it is important to consider if that is something that you are going to be looking for as a main part or a component of your 
retirement that you do use the most conservative outlook all the time. Therefore, if you do that, it could only be better, right? Uh, next question comes in from Chris E. It's kind of uh, a long. Let's see here. Uh, dear Andrew, a hearty congratulations on the 15th anniversary of the TDI podcast. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. I'm a long-term listener, and I thank you for the invaluable advice you have provided over the years. My question is this for you. Uh, for, a study, uh, for a steady return of money you don't need for immediate use, how do you feel about, one, U.S. Treasury I-bonds, two, U.S. dollar coin, the bonds would seem to have less risk and are currently carrying an interest rate of 7.12%. Nobody panic. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, for the first six months and 9.62% uh, for the next two, 6%. Six months. But you have no idea what the interest rate will be after that. And there's generally a, a penalty for drawing before five years. With USDC, US dollar coin, I'm unclear on how you risk is involved. The interest rate is usually around 7 to 9%. And you can draw the money whenever you want. Okay. Great question. Every once in a while, I'm getting these great questions about I-bonds and what's going on with that. So inflation-related bonds, an important thing to look at um, with regard to... Uh, interest rates uh, and uh, where the opportunities lie. And you are doing an interesting comparison against uh, the U.S. dollar coin. Now, understand something. One is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. That's the inflation tips, the I-bonds. And the other one is not. I-bonds are. There's also a limitation of how much you can do in I-bonds, how much you can buy in uh, any, any particular account. Um, it's a good place, but I agree with you. You don't know what inflation is going to be like in the future. And you're not quite sure what the interest rate will be. It could be, you know, 2% or zero. It had been for years. But right now it is paying a good number, and that's not the worst thing. You do have to hold it for a period of time. The thing that differentiates one versus the other, again, is one, there are unknowns in both of them. We don't know what's going to pay after this first period or, or a couple of periods. The second thing is one is locked up for a while for a period of time which if you know that it's used for something in the future, that's not the worst thing. The other one, the problem you have with that is you don't know what the backer is. U.S. dollar coin, which is basically a cryptocurrency stable coin, you don't know what who the backer is. That may be okay if you do know who it is, but there's a lot of litigation, regulation that's going on right now about whether or not this is a security. You just got to be careful about that. Know where you're getting it from because understand that you just can't get 7 to 9% anywhere. I was talking to someone last week who is actually involved in this pretty heavily. They believe in it. They think it's a great thing. And I, I understand where they're coming from. And I agree with it. The point is maybe a little diversification here, maybe utilizing a little bit of both. Realize very clearly, though, I want to state this like overtly. I want you to hear this. One is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government and the full taxing power. One is backed by the company that is issuing it. One is a based on a lot of leverage. One is not. Well, I don't know. Maybe they both are at leverage. But one is definitely two, <laughs> cryptocurrencies in the background, which have a lot of question. So think about that. But I do think you're on the right track of looking for these options, alternatives, uh, what's going on in, in the current market condition. All right, so you want crabs? I'll give you crabs. Brian B., a couple other people sent this in as well. We talked about this last week, an acronym that we need. The idea of where do we want to be when we think about asset allocation? Where do we want to be? It says, uh, from, from what we talked about, so, so 
Brian writes, he says, hey, Andrew, I love the podcast and will love a copy of my book. So I I think, you know, I'm looking at your name, your last name. I think you're one of the ones I saw go through. Um, he says, I think crabs are as critical to our finances as they are to our ocean. Crabs, C-R-A-B-S, cash, real estate, alternatives, bonds, and stocks. A lot of times when we talk about asset allocation from a very broad scope, a lot of people think about just stocks, bonds, cash. Sometimes they throw in real estate. Stocks, bonds, cash. What I did was added the alternative sector, which I think is critical. And that covers a lot of space, right? It's, it's, could it be, could it be, could it be cryptocurrencies? Maybe alternatives, maybe. Could it be alternative manager styles that are non-correlated with markets? Yeah. Could it be things like commodities? Mm, interesting. So crabs are one of them. We had other ones too that people sent in. Um, bracks and scrab and scabs, scarves. There was a bunch of other weird ones. I don't remember all of them. But crabs, I think it's perfect. Because, you know, crabs walk sideways to get to their point. They don't always go directly in, in one direction or the other. And that's what we want. We want a portfolio that's moving. It's moving a right, you know, directionally in a way, but not necessarily the way everything else is moving. And crabs don't always go directly forward like everything else. They're kind of scooting around sideways and backwards and upwards. But they're moving. They're getting there to where we want to go. Just not along with the direct route sometimes. And that's okay. Crabs. C-R-A-B-S. I want you to write that down, and that is our new mantra. Our new mantra is crabs. That's how we want to allocate our portfolios. Now, in each of each of these sectors, there are, or each of these asset allocation classes, these are very broad sectors. There are underlying sectors that we look at. We talked about real estate before. What kind of real estate? Domestic, international? Do we want to use mortgage or leverage? Do we want to use residential or commercial? We think about bonds. Do we want to be in uh, dollar-denominated or international, foreign or emerging, domestic, corporate? Do we want to be in um, inflation-protected or do we want to be in munis? Do we, I mean, there's all these different ways to look at each one of these, but these are the areas that we want covered and how, when creating a portfolio, this is the starting point. This is the starting point for when we set out to create a portfolio, looking at exactly where... Uh, we lay our money and how we diversify and what percentage is put into each quadrant first and foremost, and then how is it broken down? We know generally when we go on the risk, the the um, the range of risk, alternatives will put up there as number one, then stocks and real estate, then bonds, and then cash. And again, that's a general concept of the risk pyramid, if you will. And when we look at that and we focus in on how that is and we understand about ourselves and what risk that we want to have, then we can properly diversify utilizing that acronym and then going one step further and digging in deeper to then figure out where we want to be underneath that in the various sectors. So, Brian, I love it. That is awesome. Thanks for sending that in. And our next question comes in from... Doug R. Question is, I know technology stocks were due for a correction, but some have dropped over 50%. This is PayPal and Block. Unfortunately, I have owned both since last year. Why the massive drops on companies that are well-established and have solid financials? You know, the question really stems from two things, I think, here, Doug. The issue is, did the stocks themselves 
and their businesses and what they're doing deserve to be valued at the level they were valued with, valued at before the drop? That's the first question you need to ask yourself. Just because the stock is 70 doesn't mean it's supposed to be at 70. The other question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, what are these worth in the future? If we are looking at a higher interest rate environment, I've talked about this capital asset pricing model or dividend discount models or, or earnings or cash flow discount model. What we look at is the components that make up that calculation. The financial calculation utilizes something that is a estimation of future cash flows or future value of the earnings in the future, as well as something called a risk-free rate of return. And when we utilize a risk-free rate of return that is zero versus a risk-free rate of return, let's say there's three, when we utilize the numbers that are based on, let's say, a two-year treasury, it changes dynamically the valuation and what you get out of that actual calculation. The result of that is much lower. The value of the future cash flows of something in the future is much less at a higher interest rate. It just is. Therefore, it's a very simple mathematical calculation. The question that you have right now is, are they deserving to be this low considering the opportunities that both those companies provide? That may be something that is um, a, a, a more interesting to me. Because when we look at some of the, the, the drops that we've had and the opportunities that still lie within those names, the creativity, the management teams, et cetera, you have to wonder if some of this is just a little bit more of hysteria because people really don't know what's happening with interest rates because as we go on and we see our chicken prices at ridiculous levels, our car prices at ridiculous levels, and chip prices, et cetera, go through that. I'm not talking about potato chips. I'm talking about microchips. These things cause problems and make uh, us wonder about what the values really should be. And therefore, what we have now is a concern and um, maybe a misallocation of where the capital should be, considering where that is in, in the future. Next question comes in from David A. He says, hey, Andrew, enjoy your podcast. Longtime listener, probably 10 years or so. I feel like a podcast family member since, because I listen to DH Unplugged and the Discipline Investor Love the game and also no agenda as well as others. My question is about REITs. Real estate is very hot and goes up year after year as well as rent prices. So why are rents down? REITs down? Is it because of interest rate fears? And if there are another investment besides actually buying real estate to take advantage of this increase? Yeah, well, uh, we talked about this, the whole idea of REITs. We, we spent a lot of time on that earlier. And it is because of uh, a couple of things that there's a risk off characteristic that is present in the markets today. That risk-off characteristic that is, is so well-known for buying at any price is the shine is coming off that penny. And when that shine comes off that penny, it hits everything across the board, and especially in interest rate-sensitive instruments like real estate investment trusts. Next question is from Dos Joseph D. Hey, Andrew, I was getting some unsolicited financial advice from another colleague and was curious how much smoke he was blowing. Their claim was that it was the best to fund 401ks fully at the start of the year to maximize time in the market. That seems, of course, to me that it defeats some of the dollar cost averaging benefits of making contributions throughout the year. He points out that you would still benefit from averaging over many years 
and the increased time adds up over time. Curious about your thoughts. I don't know. Listen, dollar cost averaging. Is it dollar cost averaging by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year, by the decade? I mean, the fact is you're putting money in over time. I don't think there's necessarily any magic about putting money in at the beginning of the month or the end of the month or the beginning of the year, end of the year and front loading it. Or I, I just, I don't know what the point of that is at all. Now, maybe there's some thought about, I don't know. Uh, the, the average is that markets will be higher over time. That's the bottom left to top right concept. Maybe. And maybe there is some anecdotal or maybe even calculated evidence that, that, that putting money in in front does work out better. But I, I just can't imagine that if we're doing this over a long stretch of, it, of time, it really matters. I think it equalizes in a pretty good way by using your dollar cost averaging and it's a much easier process to deal with. Good question. Uh, Mick, Mick S, he says, hey, you've been appointed to the head of the Fed and everyone thinks you're the best. What would you do in the next six months? Ha, ah, that's a good question. I spent a lot of time criticizing them. The question is, what am I going to do? Well, I would, I would try to, first of all, get rid of this range of Fed funds rates, this 0 to 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 75. Stupid. I would say the next rate, rate hike that I would do, which is next week, by the way, I would go to 75 base points, not 75 base points. I'd move it up to 75 base points from 25 to 50, which will be likened to either a 25 or a 50 base point hike, but leave it as 75 basis points. That is it. None of this range crap. It's too confusing. And who's the range for? But it will appease the markets in a way because it will show that we are, we know what we're doing. Then what I would do is I would put away all the speakers. I would stop letting them go out and just talking on a regular basis about all sorts of things and just go back to the dot plot evidentiary-based work that we do, have everything come out once a month at uh, various conferences, and that's it. That's it. I would stop with this communication strategy. I think it's way too much. Now, the problem is I wouldn't do it right away because – You'd have to ease out of it. Otherwise, they think you're doing something under the table and wrong. Um, there's a question from Michael K. He says, what advice or resources would you recommend for somebody trying to get young grandchildren involved and interested in investing? Um, I do think there's a lot of areas, I mean, very simply, uh, on the web that is education for young people. Unfortunately, one of the best things to do is try to get into something like, um, um, it's coming to me, Junior Achievement. If you haven't done that, I've taught that before. Junior Achievement is a great course taught around all over the country, different places around the country have different ways of doing it. They either enter into the high school or sometimes you can go there. Junior Achievement has an incredible amount of, uh, of business and finance, really maybe not stock market so much, but business. That's where you want to get them started, understanding business. And I would I would go that route, check that out, and see if you can get some good information from them. A lot more in that email. Uh, and some of the things that he's doing there from my friend there in Spring, Texas. Charlie H., he writes, if the forward-looking PE is higher then his projected earnings is going down. If the forward-looking PE is higher, then is the projected earnings going down? I just noticed a lot of my stocks I'm looking at 
like CPT and Apple and CB, et cetera, it's not a negative indicator for the broader market. Or is this? I'm reading this all wrong. Sorry there, Charlie. Uh, so what you're seeing is that price are going down. Um, but when you see that PE is going down, that may be uh, evident of a couple of different things. Either price is catching up to the uh, earnings, earnings catching up to price, or when it's moving, I should say. But when you do see PE going down, there's a readjustment. Like I said, there's a readjustment on the assumed multiple that will be paid. Therefore, price has to come down. Now, earnings may not be moving down right away. The assumption is it's going to happen over time. And as such, that market markets will get ahead of that, right? Markets will get ahead of that move. And what's happening right now is the idea that, well, we're entering into recession. When we enter into recession, we reprice. A lot of things have been repriced very quickly without really a recession happening. But all the telltale signs were there. We had a Fed that was on the prowl to increase rates. We saw the yield curve get humpy and inverted. We saw um, oil prices skyrocket. And even though they say that higher oil prices are not problems for the consumer, but yet lower oil prices are very good for the consumer, we throw that discussion right out the window as hogwash. Fact is higher prices are a problem. And it hits in a disproportional way the lower income folk that are out there much more than the higher income folk. It's just the way it is. So we are seeing an adjustment or a readjustment on price earnings from twofold. One, in a time when there was free money, people lost their minds. They thought anything you could invest in would go up forever and that uh, the economy would never go through cycles. Two, a recessionary mindset where people now have gotten, I think, a little bit crazy. Not in every stock, but crazy. So you have something right there that I think you're right about. Uh, next question from Eric S. Are there any tax liabilities with the company match contributions of a Roth 401k? Does the company pay those taxes? Does the money stay separated from your individual Roth 401 contributions, which have had the taxes paid? When do you pay the taxes? All right, so first of all, a uh, lot of questions here about Roth 401ks. Uh, this is not tax advice. Advice C a tax professional for any tax advice. There's my disclaimer. So the answer to your question is that uh, Roth 401ks, there are benefits, of course, to um, the individual that the money that you have, while it does not go in on an after-tax basis, it does, in fact, um, I do not believe that, I do believe that the company will still pay because you're going to pay. It's an after-tax contribution. After-tax means after-tax are paid on it. The company, I believe, is still going to pay as well, um, but what happens is that it is growing within that 401k, the Roth part, uh, on a tax-deferred basis. And eventually, sometime in the future, someday, you'll take that money out tax-free. Really cool way to save. It works out better the younger you are. I have part of mine is in a Roth 401k. The next uh, question you have is, is it separated from your individual 401k uh, contributions? Um, it, it, I don't know what exactly you mean by that, but you can combine them once you maybe leave that employment, roll it over into that Roth, uh, Roth IRA. And, uh, the company match, uh, usually I don't think the company matches on the 401k side. Uh, they put it into the other side. So for example, um, part of my money in the 401k goes to my 401k regular and part of it goes to the 401k Roth. The Roth does not get the match. 
but the match goes into the other side, right? The match goes into my regular 401k plan. I think that helps. Interesting. I, I, when, when we set up the 401k and I looked into that, I'm like, hey, how does that exactly work? Realizing there's no Roth. Um, then when we look at our statements, I'm like, hey, there's no Roth 401k. What's up with that? Then quickly realized that there is no match on the Roth side. But but you don't lose that. Let's be clear. You do not lose that. The match just goes into your regular um, 401k plan. So good questions. Great questions. Thank you so much for all of those. You know what? Listen, what did we learn today? We learned that this is a Fed-engineered recession. We know that it's a Ponzi scheme when it comes to Social Security. Right? We understand that we want crabs. We want crabs. That is the acronym for how we want to establish our base asset allocation. We also understand that there are changes in the environment as we go through the cyclicalities of a economic uh, range where we go from uh, you know, extraordinary expansion into contraction, all natural, all normal, but things change and it's okay. Fact is that we want to make sure that we have that dollar cost averaging going on and that diversification. That's what that's what's happening. That's what it's all about. So keep that in mind. Thank you so much for joining me this week and every week. I do appreciate it. Anything you need to know about what we do and how we can help you is over on thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Go over there. Check it out. Listen, it's maybe time that we work together. Don't you want to work together? I'd love to work with you. Come on over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Send me a little note. Say, hey, let's get a meeting going. Let's talk about what I have. We'll figure it out. Thanks so much for joining me this week, every week. I'll see you soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.